0: This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. We're telling you this so you can make your own independent evaluation of these opportunities. Also, as with most leading edge opportunities, if you can't afford to potentially lose your investment, don't risk it. We make no personal recommendations about any sponsor on this program. We encourage you to do your own research. And now, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with James Pettit, the president and CEO of Abin Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Abin Resources is a Canadian gold exploration company with significant projects in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and the Yukon. Jim, welcome back to the program. Nice to see you here at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Thank you very much, Alice. Great to be here. You and I have been chatting for over two and a half years, almost three years. Let's see if we can fine-tune it a little bit for 2020. Everybody's excited about the market. How does that change your thinking, if at all, for this year? I've been looking for gold
1: for a long time. I mean, not much has changed for me, but the market expectations are changing rapidly. And you're gonna start seeing it more and more across the board, not just gold. But gold's up three hundred bucks since May last year. I'm not gonna go away. What we've done now after three years working up in the Golden Triangle is compiled an awful lot of information and data and we're compiling all that right now. We're going to move forward for this next drill season come June. We've got all kinds of things up our sleeve. There's things we see in the work program we did this past season which produced a lot of lower grade gold but bigger intersections and as we headed south it's all polymetallic so there's five elements to work with rather than just gold and silver. We're pretty excited about what we've seen. The geologists are behind Behind the scenes, putting it all together. Big compilation study, and we're sitting down this week and we'll come up with plans going forward for next drill season.
0: Well, let's talk about the spot where we're at right now. We're at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Last year, as far as I'm concerned, was a terrible year for retail conferences like this, and I attended one a few days ago, the Metals Investor Forum. And also the same forum last month here in Vancouver and the excitement in this show the aisles are full and I'm feeling things I haven't felt since perhaps 2007 2011 2012 really nice optimism that that I hope is sustainable yeah I do too and I think what we're seeing
1: right now is a bit of an inflection point you've got commodities other than gold aren't really moving I mean you've got palladium I think is taken off or one of those two elements Copper's starting to get a bid the fundamentals look really good for copper gold looks the way it's It's on a trajectory upward. I don't think that's going to change. And the people are starting to see it and feel it. And it's an old statement I heard Ian Telfer say many years ago, listening to him give a talk about Gold Corp. You know, if you think gold's going higher, act like gold's going higher. But he was talking from the corporate side not necessarily the investors, but the investors have picked up on it. That's what they do. Expectations are leading right now and that's going to show in the stock prices. I think you're going to start seeing a, a bump, a bounce in the stock prices now. I've got a friend that just did a financing at that metals investor forum. He just told the people as he ended his talk that, hey, by the way, I'm doing a small raise. If you come to buy the booth, if you want to know about it, he sold it out. He sold it out at three in the afternoon on the last day of that conference. Like, here you go. That's a good indicator. We're not having problems raising money right now. As a matter of fact, I spent all day in the uh, the deal room. Sorry, the one-on-one room. You got all these people, they're from out of town. Most of them, a lot of the people in there that aren't moving are from Toronto and they've set up meetings all day long. I had eight meetings yesterday in there. It's amazing to see that they come out here and spend the whole time at this show in the deal room.
0: You mentioned marketing. This is a paid program. And I have some investors that I've run into occasionally here. They're not my investors, but they're investors in this area. And they're asking me, well, what do I like? Who do I invest in? I say, I'm not allowed to really tell you, first of all. And if I did, you may wind up hating me someday. And I'm a paid journalist. People pay to be on the air on our program. And then they think, well, then you're biased. And I said, well, no, I'm just doing my job because companies have a fiduciary duty to get the word, actually, to potentially increase their shareholder base. And this is something that you and your group do proactively. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. You have to market. There's a lot of companies that don't, and they tend to kind of fall by the wayside because nobody knows them. You know, you can ask some of these newsletter people, you know, about companies we have in our office. I run one, another guy runs one, another guy runs one. I own the company that does all the administrative work for all of them combined, but you have to spend money on marketing. And it's so easy now because it's digital. We don't have a room full of guys on the phone. We're not sending out hard copies of anything. It's all digital. You use social media to the best of your ability, and there's a lot of people out there that are really good at it. That's who you hire today, and it's just pushing information out and everything that we put out is already disclosed. It's the perfect medium for recycling news releases. Twitter and and that is phenomenal. You want to remind people of what you've done in the past, you can Twitter it out and just, you got one word from one news release a year and a half ago. You highlight that, you link it back to the news release, and all of a sudden you've got all kinds of people back in your website. And it lasts
0: forever on the internet, doesn't go away.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And what we do is we're talking right now, I'm talking with you, and there's some other people that I do this with, bloggers and all that. They'll do a, an interview and put it in the text form, and then we move it up to bigger platforms. And that helps your distribution, and it helps they need content. And there's some pretty good ones. You know, one of the ones I'm gonna, I'll give a plug for here is uh, the resource world has a digital arm now called Canadian Investor. And it's great. It's starting to build. They have access to decades' worth of Resource World's subscribers and now it's all digital and it's great and they need content you know there's some others INN need content they distribute far and wide where a lot of these small bloggers that are just you know local get the airtime they get that time and they all of a sudden are getting pushed out and it helps them it's an amazing way to do things I mean back in the early days we were the first group to start using social media and we got knocked down by the TSX several times and then we figured out oh on that Twitter frame we could put our disclaimers and everything in there and then just push it out and then when the TSX went public guess who phoned us to ask how to do this stuff and I give them all the credit in the world now they get it
0: well Jim what would you say to somebody who's taking a look at Avon for the very first time there's always new people listening to our broadcast
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, we've got people you can talk to or you can basically, you go online, take a look at the website, you can go through the investor part of the website and see all the media stuff that I do and you can follow that if you don't want to read it and get updated right away. Going forward after three years of drilling, we've got a pretty good program we're starting to formulate for this coming year. There's lots of other things on the horizon that we're looking at, but primarily is we've got some tremendous ideas and that'll be probably crystallized by the end of this week.
0: Well, Jim, it's always great to see you. I look forward to our next chat. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Come down and visit us in Malibu. Absolutely, I will. Thanks a lot. I've been speaking with James Pettit, the president and CEO of Aubin Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Find their logo on our website, EllismartReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin.
2: Subscribe to the Ellis Martin newsletter. It's free. Go to EllisMartinReport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop up form.
0: I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with David Cole, the president and CEO of EMX Royalty Corp., trading on the TSX Venture Exchange and on the New York Stock Exchange as EMX. EMX is a precious and base metals royalty company whose investors are provided with discovery, development, and commodity price optionality while limiting exposure to the risk inherent to operating companies. EMX has a sizable global portfolio of assets and has currently over $70 million in the treasury and no debt. Dave, welcome back to the program. Happy New Year to you, although it's well into January now.
3: Happy New Decade to you too, Alice. Always my pleasure. A lot of
0: exciting things happening with EMX. I noticed the stock price, the share price has done extremely well. Let's start with that. Why in a sector that's been down or flat have we seen such growth with EMX royalty.
3: Well, you know, I could expound upon that for a long period of time, but try and summarize it down. You know, we've got over 50 million US dollars in cash, 65 million dollars in working capital, no debt, exposure, to 2.3 million acres of mineral rights around the world. And the market is slowly digesting that and understanding that. And I've got some guys that just love to buy value that are managing some funds that have been accumulating the stock over the course of the last few months. And that's just augmented what's been a nice growth story for us over the last four years. You know, where four and a half times in four years and still a substantial percentage of our market cap is cash in the bank and i think we've got quite a bit ways to go honestly
0: well it's really about your business model it's about cash it's about revenue and that's the only thing that's really super sustainable in the mining sector and the resource sector wouldn't you
3: agree you know everybody loves cash flow particularly in a world where bonds are trading near zero that definitely matters and we have a lot of incipient cash flow as well as some current cash flow embedded in our portfolio But that has been built thanks to our business model, as you point out, and our business model is unique in the industry in that we grow royalties organically, and that's why we call ourselves the uh, royalty generator. We generate royalties through execution of the prospect generation business model, where we acquire prospective mineral rights, add value to the projects using astute geology, sell them off for cash, shares in companies, and always a production royalty. And we've been doing that, as you know, for 16 years, building out a royalty portfolio.
0: Isn't it... Interesting that some of the companies now and great for them in the mining sector at six, seven, eight, nine dollars a share, and yet they're not production, they may not be for a while. I would think that a company like yours is perhaps underexposed to investors around the world, and it's such a great store that we still may see a four or five X with regard to your company. I'm speculating, I'm not asking you to speculate, just a comment, if you will.
3: So it's an accreted business model that builds value over time. So it's only a matter of time, in my view, that the business model accretes the fundamental value that will deserve a 4X in the stock price. That's the way royalty companies work. We accrete value over time. The way we build royalties costs less than the traditional royalty company, which are doing royalty financings or buying existing royalties at a very high multiple to cash flow, because these are very phenomenal financial instruments with embedded optionality, discovery optionality at no cost to royalty holder. Commodity price optionality at no cost to us as the royalty owner. So that optionality continues to be exposed to develop more value in the portfolio over time. And that particularly becomes the case when the portfolio effect starts to come into play, when you've got a multitude of royalties spread out across the world and you're never sure where the big success is going to come from. But you know that companies are spending millions of dollars on your projects at no cost to you, advancing more resources, more reserves, and more discoveries, all to the royalty holder's benefit. If you go back and you look at the price performance of Franco Nevada since inception, and they've just accreted in valuation, averaged out over their existence in the high teens, compounded annually. You take EMX. We're close to 15%. We originally went public at 30 cents Canadian. We're two dollars and 10 or 12 cents Canadian now. Over 16-year period, that works out to uh, mid-teens compounded growth in share price over that time. Now, of course, you know we're all exposed to these exacerbated cycles in the market that can take the stock and propel it up to crazy valuations, as we saw in 2010, 11, where the entire sector was overvalued, and then it was a steep decline from there. What I call the beta impact, the impact of the overall market, which is independent from what the company is actually doing, where the stock price got hammered along with the entire sector, and we became deeply undervalued. And when we became deeply undervalued, you saw my buying, right? I stepped in, I started buying. I've bought a salient amount of stock over the course of the last four years. I believe I've bought about 700,000 shares in the last year or so alone. That's in my simple recognition that the stock's undervalued. I'm buying it because I thoroughly understand the business.
0: I think last time we spoke, your share price was around dollar65 Canadian maybe a dollar ten as you said it's over two dollars now Canadian. I'm wondering when your company's performing that well, a company that generates revenue from the royalties that you have around the world. Is that an early indicator that the sector itself may see some more love in general?
3: Well, that's a crystal ball that I don't know. It's certainly an observation. One thing that we have seen throughout history a long period of time is that the stock prices tend to move before commodity prices. Although this particular last run, you know, the commodity prices, particularly gold, took quite a run and the stocks were a little bit muted in their response. So it's not always exactly the way you expect it to be. But I will, We'll say simply this. The world consumes approximately 3% more metal every year compounded, and we expect the planet to consume as much copper in the next 25 years as has ever been consumed cumulatively throughout all of history, which means every copper mine on the planet has to double in size over the course of the next 25 years. So the value of mineral rights, Ellis, they're not going down.
0: One of the most interesting things about a company like yours is that you'll have a royalty on the property, and the property may change hands, and it may change hands for the better where actually work gets done and you get paid. You've got a 4% royalty on a property in Turkey right now, and Diedemann Matangilik has sold the balya lead zinc silver mine to neighboring Eson. Now, I know that your company, EMX, holds a 4% royalty on this particular property, but Let's talk about what that could mean for EMX when something changes hands like this.
3: It's a great example of the power of royalty generation. Ellis, we originally bought the Balia license at auction from the Turkish government for seventeen thousand U.S. dollars. We did what we do best, and that is build geologic models on the property. We identified prospective zones. We sold that for a hundred thousand dollars in cash, so we got all our money back and more, plus a four percent uncapped, unbuyable gross royalty on the property for any future production to Dediman. Dediman came in and they did fifty-nine thousand feet of drilling to advance multiple discoveries and multiple stacked lead zinc silver zones, zones of lead zinc and silver mineralization. And within a district that has been operating on and off for you know nearly a century. And the neighboring property had advanced discovery as well, and they were better capitalized. That's Esson. They were better capitalized. They built a 5,000 ton per day mill, and that mill chewed through the deposit that they had on their side of the line, and they're now mining at 800 to 900 meters depth, which is pretty deep for that style of mineralization. So that mill's becoming hungry, There's a big discovery on the other side of the property boundary where our 4% royalty is. And those two companies came together and consolidated the district. And anytime you have a district consolidation, there's substantial synergies and synergies that result in more production. And so now the ores that are on our side of the line where we have the 4% royalty are going to go through the 5,000 ton per day mill because it's all owned by the same company. And as part of that transaction, we had to approve it. So we had leverage. And so we took advantage of that leverage by negotiating a very good commingling agreement. And what that means is an agreement that allows our ores to be mixed with their ores and go through the mill. And it's a sophisticated process of sampling with umpire assays and metallurgical work, which determine how much metal is coming from our side of the line so we can be paid appropriately for that royalty. I talk about the power of royalty generation in generating royalties at the grassroots level, organically growing royalties, if you will, and how powerful that is. You know, we're into this property for nothing. We bought it for 17 grand, sold it for 100 grand, plus a 4% royalty. And so we have no cost basis in this. And it's going to become a multi million dollar cash loan royalty annually for many, many, many years into the future. The money that we will make off the Bali royalty, in my opinion, will be more valuable than all the money we have spent in the history of the company generating all the royalties that we have generated. It's very powerful.
0: I want to stay overseas now and talk about something else that's very powerful. And again, we're talking about something that has changed hands, specifically the giant Timo Copper Gold Deposit in Serbia, where you have a 0.5% royalty, it's now being advanced by Shizen Mining. I understand they really have their foot on the gas, more or less, getting this into production, and they're constructing two vertical shafts into the upper deposit, as you and I are speaking right now, and they'll be likely mining there for in excess of 100 years. This really is a monster. How does this play out for EMX shareholders, potentially?
3: That's the company maker embedded in the portfolio. Alice and you hit the nail on the head. It's another example of district consolidation. The Chinese, and you said it right, they've got the pedal to the metal, right? Those guys are so hungry for metal, their whole economy. And of course, they have an integrated economy, and this is a state-owned enterprise or largely a state-owned enterprise. And so they're looking at it holistically throughout their economy. They know they'd have to have the copper in order to fuel the manufacturing capacities that they have in China. So they came in, they bought out Nevsun, who had been advancing the deposit. Nevsun had bought out the company of which we originally sold the property to and generated the royalty. That was Reservoir Capital. And Reservoir made the discovery. Then they sold to Nevsun. Nevsun's a much bigger company. Nevsun was then bought out for $1.x billion because of this deposit by Xinjing, who's even a bigger company. And so now they've got all the capital they need to put the pedal to the metal, really drive this thing into production. And they just signed a memorandum of understanding representing this fact that they want to move this ahead very, very, very quickly. They signed a memorandum of understanding with the Serbian government to invest $474 million in the ground to bring on the upper high-grade zone, which is a small but very high-grade and, and a great economic zone within the broader Timok deposit. And they're going to bring that high-grade zone into production first based upon the feasibility study that was filed by Nevsun. When they're mining in the high-grade upper zone, it will pay to EMX, Royalty, $2.5 million at today's metal prices. And that's in the feasibility study that was filed by Nessun before the sale to Xinjiang. And $2.5 million coming into us is, I mean, that's fine. We're delighted to have that. But that's not company making. When they start to develop the lower zone, which is gigantuan, it's over a billion tons at close to a 1% copper with a really nice gold credit. When they get into the lower zone, which they'll do whilst they're mining the upper zone and getting their payback on capital, they'll develop the underground infrastructure to advance the lower zone. Then the production of the property will go up marketably and the royalty payment will go up marketably from there. And long-term, you can do the math. Over a billion tons at a percent copper with a gold credit, that half percent royalty is worth a lot of money. And we're delighted to own that royalty.
0: What is it worth? About four or five hundred million dollars, something of that nature.
3: So, because it's not a 43-101 compliant reserve document, I'm not allowed to actually say that. You can do the math on that. I can tell you that the compliant resource. There's very strict rules and regulations about what we're allowed to say, of course, with respect to how companies report reserves and resources and feasibility studies. And Nevson filed compliant resource document on the Lower Zone. That's how we know that it's over a billion tons. They have a dozen drill rigs on the property, continuing to expand that. So we know it's bigger than that. But the last compliant number that was put out was 1.1 billion tons at 0.99% copper and a nice gold credit along with that. And so you can do the math on how big that is and our half percent royalty and come up with a number. I'm actually not allowed to do that and say that. That would be contrary to Canadian law. There's strict rules about what we're allowed to say. But the number that you came up with, I think, is pretty reasonable.
0: So I can speculate all I want. I'm a media guy.
3: Yes, (laughs) that's right. (laughs)
0: And I did my own math, and I want to apologize if I put you on the spot or attached any risk to our conversation, but I did some math, and this is the number I came up with, and it doesn't mean that it's going to happen one way or the other, but we ask our listeners to do their own math and do their research. As always, it's
3: a good point to actually delve into. Your readers would be interested in this because there are strict rules and regulations about what we're allowed to say. There can be assets that have substantial value that we're not allowed to come out and say it's worth exactly this much money because the operator of that is not a Canadian company. They haven't filed compliant resource documents in Canada. What we call 43101 reports. So that would be the case with Turkish assets where we have three mines being built on our properties there, being advanced by private Turkish companies. So. I can tell folks, yeah, we've got mines being built on our properties in Turkey, but it's difficult for me to say, and the royalty is worth X. And that's because of this situation. And that can result in an information gap and can result in an undervaluation of the security relative to what the actual information is.
0: I understand. And thank you for explaining that. We don't have enough discussion about the rules and regulations that are involved in our business, and our sector, for a very good reason. They exist as a protection, more or less, to the shareholder. But then again, I would encourage anyone listening with any company, again, to do their own research and invest at their own risk. There are never any guarantees. Right, Dave? No,
3: of course not. Absolutely not. But I will say this. The nice thing about being a royalty holder is that if something goes horribly wrong, it wasn't our money, right? Particularly when you generate the royalty and you sell off the property for cash, shares, and the royalty, we've already recouped our investment. And when you have 69 royalties as we do around the world, and all those counterparties are advancing those assets with their money, not our money, that helps reduce risk substantially and create what we call the portfolio effect.
0: Would it be safe to say that therefore there's never any real need for you to go to the market and dilute the share structure?
3: Well, Right now, I have as much money in the bank as I've raised in the entire history of the company, no debt, and exposure to 2.3 million acres of mineral rights around the world. We're not in a position now where we need to to, uh, issue any share capital uh, for any reason, unless it were a very, very, very special situation.
0: Let's spin the globe a little bit. You have assets everywhere, as far as I know, Idaho, Australia... New Zealand. I'm leaving many things out. You've done business in Haiti. Jurisdictions are fine as long as you're getting your royalty when you need to get it. Now, let's spin that globe to Nevada. Back in mid-December, your company, EMX, announced that you had acquired a 19.9 percent interest in the rawhide gold silver mine in the state of nevada walk us through us if you don't mind sir on how this might impact future cash flow at emx royalty
3: what i'd like to start to do is explain how that fits into our business model so we have a three-prong business approach and our bread and butter is the organic growth of royalties royalty generation as we've been discussing the second prong is that we occasionally buy royalties that exist And the third prong is we make strategic investments. And our strategic investing history, Ellis, and you and I have talked about this before, it's stellar. My internal rate of return after tax on invested capital over 16-year history is 40% compounded. And there's been a couple of big wins that skew those numbers. And notably was a recent sale of a, a project in Russia that we had a strategic investment in that paid out handsomely and put us in the position where we have a substantial amount of cash in the bank and no debt today. So, We're always on the lookout for ways to astutely allocate capital and maintain that strong rate of return that we have on our invested capital within our strategic investment portfolio. And this is the latest example. And given the fact that the capital markets are tough in the mining sector right now and have been for some time, there's a plethora of opportunities that we're being shown. And we're able to filter through those opportunities, fail the vast majority of them, utilizing our team of metallurgists, geologists, Engineers and finance people to decide what makes sense. And this one bubbled to the top. And so we're just delighted to be twenty percent shareholders in Rawhide. It's a currently active gold mine, pouring doré, and we expect to get immediate dividend payment. So this will have nice impact to our bottom line. And it was not expensive. We only paid three point seven million U.S. dollars for that twenty percent interest. Tell me
0: about the one percent royalty you've got on Leadville, Dave, and expand on that if you don't mind. It's very interesting.
3: Happy to, Alice. And Newmont Money Corporation was the counterparty and operator of that mine. It has been. For for a long time. I was actually involved in the discovery of Leeville when I used to work for Newmont back uh, in my younger days. Newmont and Barrick just formed a large joint venture in Nevada combining their assets into a new company, a joint venture company called Nevada Gold Mines. Barrick is the operator of that company. And Nevada Gold Mines has a website and on that website is a PowerPoint presentation that discusses the salient aspects of the various assets within the company. And that would include Leeville. And within that PowerPoint presentation, they delineate the drill-indicated resource potential on the Leeville property and delineate a substantial new discovery. And they're talking about total endowment of existing resources, reserves, plus the drill-indicated resource potential. And they have cross-sections with drill assays, et cetera, that define that zone, the multiple zones. And we're talking about a number that's close to 10 million ounces. So, we're super delighted to be the 1% holder on that. That royalty has been paying for years, so ever since we've had it. It's already paid over 13 million US dollars since we've owned it. But we expect that to become a substantial asset in the portfolio in future years.
0: And I just did my own math on that, and I won't say what I came up with out loud, but that sounds wonderful, Dave. I understand you're going to be along with me and. In- few of our other friends at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference coming up. I look forward to seeing you there, and I really appreciate you joining me today in the program.
3: Yeah, I look forward to seeing you there. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Ellis.
0: I've been speaking with David Cole, the president and CEO of EMX Royalty Corp, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange and on the New York Stock Exchange as EMX. Go to the company's website, emxroyalty.com. I'm Ellis Martin.
2: Subscribe to the Ellis Martin newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form.
0: I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation now with Alex Klenman, the President and CEO of Nexus Gold Corp., trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as NXS and in the U.S. on the OTCQB as NXXGF. Nexus Gold Corp. is an active explorer and developer with four projects over 560 kilometers of highly prospective ground in gold-rich Burkina Faso, West Africa, and five projects over 5,000 hectares in three proven and prolific mining districts across Canada, including the 100% owned Mackenzie Gold Project, a 1,300-hectare exploration target with multiple high-grade samples, up to 331 grams per ton gold to date in the historic Red Lake mining camp of Ontario, Canada. Alex, welcome to the program here at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference.
4: Nice to see you today. Great to see you, Ellis. Always a pleasure. If you don't mind, give us an overview of your company. Nexus Gold trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol NXS and in the US OTC QB under NXXGF. We're a gold exploration and development company. We're focused in West Africa, in Burkina Faso, and in Canada. We've got projects in places like Red Lake and a large property position in Burkina Faso. So we're on the road to something. We'll see where 2020 takes us. What are you most
0: excited about, and what can we look forward to as potential investors in 2020?
4: Well, obviously, Red Lake is getting a lot of press, getting a lot of well deserved attention. some great companies there doing some great things. We have a position in the middle of Red Lake called Mackenzie Gold Project. We've got some high-grade samples. We've got more than a dozen grading between 100 grams and 300 grams per ton. We have some historical intercepts that are quite compelling. So we're going to drill that. We'd like to drill at Q1. We're funded to do that and we're just waiting for the permits to come through.
0: Fantastic. Now you mentioned Burkina Faso and not everybody's familiar with Africa. Some people are. What is the environment like there right now?
4: It's certainly not like you're working in the backyard here in BC. There's risks inherent in West Africa, but I guess the lure for us as a small company is you can still find something of size. Hasn't been pin cushioned to death like a lot of more higher profile, safer jurisdiction places, so we're happy there. We're onto something, I think, 20, 30, 40 more holes at one of our projects. I think we have a resource estimate, so we're going to keep working it.
0: I covered your company several years ago. How has the business model
4: changed since then? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because the exploration stage company juniors at this level is a tough existence, mainly because we're talking about income. We spend money like it's going out of style because that's what we have to do to drive the company forward. So we've tried to, over the last year, introduce a project generation model where we're actually heading towards some revenue streams, even small ones. We've recently cut a deal with a company that's going to option one of our projects in Burkina. That'll give us about a million dollars in cash over the next four years. So to us, that's an important way to offset the raise, dilute, rinse, repeat cycle that most juniors get caught in. Let's talk about the capital structure of this company. What does it look like? We've got about 95 million shares out. Close friends, associates, and insiders have about 25 million. So I think we're in good shape. We've got some width, if you will, some room to grow. But we're going to try to keep dilution down as best we can as we move forward. But I find dilution is in the eye of the beholder. So I'm not too concerned. And at that market cap, you've got great potential upside. A hundred percent. I mean, we've got nine projects, soon to be 10, I believe. We concentrate on two or three of those and try to develop a resource or a good story among those core assets. We'll monetize other assets, and I think over time, that'll lead to value.
0: So I imagine with your assets, both in Africa and in Canada, you can drill
4: throughout the year. We can, absolutely. In fact, I just did a calendar this morning. If all goes well, we will be drilling each quarter of the year.
0: Alex, if you were to say one thing to our audience, why they should consider Nexus Gold as part of their investment portfolio. What would that be?
4: You know what, we're very liquid. We've been around for five years. We have good liquidity on a daily basis, but our shareholder base is across the planet. And we're trading near our 52-week low, heading into a good gold market. Why not have a look?
0: Hey, Alex, it's always great to see you, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me here at the Vancouver
4: Resource Investment Conference. Ellis, much appreciated, thank you.
0: I've been speaking with Alex Klenman, the president and CEO of Nexus Gold Corp, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as NXS and in the U.S. on the OTCQB as NXXGF. Learn more about Nexus Gold on their website, nexusgoldcorp.com. I'm Ellis Martin.
2: Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free, ellismartinreport.com.
0: I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Lena Derhali, psychotherapist and author of the book My Daddy is a Hero, How Chris Watts Went from Family Man to Family Killer, available on Amazon. Chris Watts is a husband, a father, a killer, a family man. Everybody, including his family, believe that. Yet on August 13th, 2018, he murdered Shannon, his pregnant wife and two young daughters, burying Shanon and their unborn son in a shallow grave and dumping their daughter's bodies in separate oil tanks. As terrible as his story is, it is also a warning to this day, living behind bars, Watts is still acting out the character traits that made him kill in the first place. In this discussion, we hope to point to those characteristics that you should perhaps look for when embarking upon new relationships, whether they be personal or business-related. Lena, what was your fascination with Chris Watts?
5: There was a lot of fascination, actually. One, to me, he was a complete anomaly, and he was also an anomaly to people in my field, so he sort of confounded all the experts, not just psychological experts, but investigators, he had even left investigators scratching their heads and unable to find closure with this case. And in the book, I even speak about the head detective on the case has since retired because he has PTSD from this case. And it affected him so much that he wasn't able to continue with his career. As far as I know, he hasn't gone back. So this case has really impacted people and just really left people puzzled with this man, Chris Watts, who had absolutely zero red flags or warning signs. He sort of had the, on the surface, this opposite personality of someone that we would think of as a psychopath or narcissist. He was submissive and deferential to his wife. He was a hands-on father. He never started conflict. He was very introverted and quiet and passive and easygoing. And everybody in his past had nothing but wonderful things to say about him. He was helpful, always doing favors for other people, you know, by all accounts, the perfect husband, father, co-worker, son. So it was just completely shocking when you find out that this man not only murdered his family for a woman he had known for six weeks, but had premeditated the murders for weeks and absolutely had no remorse after he committed them.
0: Are there any warning signs that you can give to our audience without folks being suspicious for no reason.
5: That's also another reason I wanted to write the book is that I don't think that we talk enough about destructive people and dangerous people and toxic people, and they come in all different forms. I think as a psychotherapist, I've always prided myself on being able to suss these people out. And I couldn't, you know, I think if Chris Watts had come into my office, I don't think I would have been able to necessarily. So part of the book was also, well, let's look at some of the typical signs, but let's also see in hindsight if we can see some of the subtle signs of somebody that is potentially a dangerous person.
0: Let's talk about possible relationships, whether they be personal or business related. I would think that one would have to take a little bit more time vetting anybody in any kind of relationship to see if anything intuitively goes south in advance.
5: Yeah, that's a great point. So the number one thing, like you said, I think the best advice I could give anybody in assessing a person out, whether it's business or personal relationships, is take your time and get to know them. Because some of the most dangerous people are the most deceptive, manipulative people. They can be really charming and charismatic and nice. And, you know, part of what I talk about in the book is that Chris Watts, I sort of brand him as a failed psychopath, as a criminal psychologist described him to me, is that from a very early age, I believe he learned to mimic other people and he sort of crafted this mask that made him really good at appearing to be normal and nice and trustworthy when in reality he actually wasn't. So I think it, this was an extreme case in the sense that it took about eight years for Chris Watts mask to come off with his wife. But if we're looking at the majority of people, most of the time their mask is going to slip way earlier than that. But you still need to take time to get to know somebody and to judge them by their actions and not their words because people can seem really nice and they can talk a really good game, but you really need to see consistency in actions over time to really judge a person.
0: There's something behind charismatic energy that wows somebody into submission, more or less. Wouldn't you agree?
5: Yes. Charismatic people are, and a lot of these people, they know how to appeal to your ego or they know how to flatter you. And so they will sometimes appear to be even nicer than the average person. And I think another red flag is people who lay on the flattery and go above and beyond. It's a little bit too much in the beginning. I especially relate this to romantic relationships. We say in a romantic relationship, a narcissistic type person and a psychopathic type person, they can sense vulnerability in people and they can sense sort of how they want to win the over. And so they'll go above and beyond in a romantic relationship that, that might look like whining and dining someone right off the bat, being really, really into them and being so sure about them before they really know someone. It takes time to really know someone. If somebody really, really likes you and is over complimentary and they don't really know you, that should be a red flag. Like in my book, I say, for example, Chris Watts, his wife Nan did not have any interest in him in the beginning and something about him liked that. And so he went above and beyond to pursue her. He She was at a very weak point in her life when they met and she had just come off a bad divorce. She had just been diagnosed with several autoimmune diseases and she wasn't looking to date. She was feeling horrible. And he kind of swooped in very early on in the first months of the relationship. He was organizing her medications and pillboxes, accompanying her to a colonoscopy. And they've only been dating a few months. And that seems like a really nice guy, but that's also a pattern of what we would call love bombing or, you know, in a psychopathic or narcissistic relationship that coming on really strong, they really want to win you over. People can say and do nice things in the beginning, but you have to put your guard up a little it's too much, if you get what I'm saying.
0: So from what I understand, Shannon was reluctant to date him initially, but he won her over with a lot of this gushy romanticism, if you will, and that became ultimately dangerous. So she herself did not recognize these fairly obvious red flags that in general, most folk would just be repelled by.
5: And I think that she, coming off a bad divorce, I think she saw that, hey, there's this guy who's really treating me well and being so nice to me. And, you know, to her credit, he was very consistent. He really only flipped the switch on her eight years after they had been together two years before they got married. And they were married for six when all of a sudden he flipped the switch. So she had seen this consistently nice guy for eight years. And so... That's again why this guy was so puzzling to everybody is that wow, he was able to really portray this opposite image of who he actually was for 8 years. That's insane if you think about it. Fooled everyone.
0: Do you think the financial difficulties they had, specifically the bankruptcy in 2015 at all contributed to this behavior?
5: I think there is a maybe a very partial contribution, but it's definitely not why he killed his family. And in some of these family annihilator cases that they call them, something like a bankruptcy would be one of the main motivating factors. Oftentimes in those cases, if we say it's a man who's killing his entire family, in the cases where you see bankruptcy, the person often commits suicide after they commit. It's almost like the shame of the bankruptcy. You may remember the Bernie Madoff case. I think one of his sons committed suicide. There's like that ripple effect of that shame factor. But in this case, this was not the case with Chris Watts. He just really just wanted a new life with this woman that he had had an affair with. And I think the money part may have played a factor in the stress of him thinking about contemplating divorce versus murder, which is not a normal thing to contemplate. But in his mind, it may have been he didn't want the responsibility financially of having three kids. They had two little girls and a baby boy on the way. In part of the book, I interview a neuroscientist who studies rage and the brain. And he identified nine specific triggers that initiate a violent response in a human being. And he says outside stress factors often contribute to that as well. So we could look at something like financial trouble, stress contributor to something like this. But definitely it was not, I don't even think, you know, the top 10 factors of why. I think he would have done it
0: regardless. I live in a city of what I'm going to call hundreds and hundreds of thousands of potential nonviolent psychopaths, narcissists, and sociopaths. And that is the greater Los Angeles area. This is probably where everybody comes to be themselves here. I'm an introvert, an extreme introvert, who's an extrovert for a living. Being an awkward youth, I had to mimic behavior so I could intellectually, I thought, function in society, in this world, which didn't make any sense to me, and I think I'm not alone in that area. There's a lot of us around. Sure. Uh, do I call myself a psychopath?
5: And all these factors alone doesn't mean somebody is a psychopath or a narcissist, you know, just because Chris Watts was really quiet in childhood and never showed emotion, which was one of the things that people did say about him. It, that alone does not mean he's a psychopath or a narcissist or anything like that. I mean, the main factors that you're really looking for is what a researcher and psychologist that I use in my book, his name is named Doc. Craig Malkin. He calls it triple E, which is the three factors that really qualify someone as having narcissistic and I would add psychopathic traits. And the triple E is exploitation, entitlement and empathy impairment. So if you have those three things, that sort of puts you more on the spectrum. You don't have empathy for people and you're constantly exploiting other people and you feel entitled that the world owes you something. Those are way more in line with psychopathic traits than somebody who's introverted who's trying to learn sort of how to function in a world where you, you need to have certain social skills to get by and to survive.
0: Well, you mentioned the word spectrum, and I automatically am heading into the autism Asperger's spectrum. Mm -hmm. I imagine there's Mm -hmm. elements of those individuals that are perhaps lower or even higher on the spectrum that could be of the character that you mentioned.
5: There have been some theories about Chris Watts having Asperger's, and I do talk about that in the book as well. There's some interesting studies on Asperger's versus psychopaths, and they're actually quite different. People with Asperger's do tend to have empathy, and sometimes a lot of empathy, and they're not really manipulative, just not their mo kind of thing and they're very very smart a lot of the time very very sharp you know sometimes even geniuses but they may have more of like a socially awkward presentation but they're definitely i wouldn't say anybody that necessarily has empathy deficits they can but most of the time they're not exploitive people at all but that's a good question because that is a differential diagnosis i think
0: when you're looking at some of these traits one of the reasons I was looking forward to interviewing you, as you know, this is a financial related program, but I stray from that occasionally or try to broaden the brushstrokes to include psychology into this business that we're all in, especially in this country. And there are so many CEOs or politicians and in the city actors that are grand presenters, are very exploitive or on the more quiet aspect of that, are just very kind, open, endearing. And these are people that I've learned, for the most part, to stay away from. But yet, we all get fooled every now and then. And somebody reels us into a rabbit hole. Let's talk about that. Right. How can we spot somebody quickly that potentially we should not do business with?
5: Oh, gosh. That's a really interesting question. And I interviewed a journalist for my book. Her name's Abby Ellen. And she wrote a book called Duped. And it was about her experience of being duped by a con man that she was engaged to who had this totally secret life that he was lying to her about. And she really wanted to write the book, not just about her experience being duped, but the psychology of being duped. And one of the things that I, again, I found really disturbing about the book and after talking to Ms. Ellen is that oftentimes we're not going to know that we're being duped. And One of the interesting things that she said to me is that sometimes really smart people get duped pretty easily because they think they're not able to be duped. So it's sort of that overconfidence. There is that sort of scary part of the book. You know, we're human. Like you said, sometimes we're just going to get duped. And there's not always like a foolproof way to prevent that from happening. But again, if you're looking at it from a business perspective or any perspective of anyone you want to have a relationship with in any capacity, what's that person's track record? Do you have a track record? of who they've done business with and what does that look like and what does your gut tell you? I think that was always a really important part of my book and when I work with my clients, it sounds a little hokey, but our gut is one of our best tools that we have to suss out danger or just any situation i find when we go against our gut feelings we often pay for it i talk about a book in my book as well called the gift of fear by gavin de becker and uh, gavin de becker is a former criminal profiler and he wrote an entire book about how to trust your gut instincts on people and how the gut instinct is always right. And so I'm a huge believer in telling people is what's this feeling you get around them? And even if you think you're being paranoid or you don't know exactly what it is, but it doesn't feel right, I always say err on the side of caution. And don't go against your gut. The gut is always right.
0: Is there any gray area with the gut? Should we overlook a little bit of bad in people and just shine a light on the good?
5: Yeah, I mean, nothing's black and white in life. Neither are most people. Human beings are really complex and... Sometimes we have to make decisions that what's the lesser of two evils, for example. And so in a business, for example, like there may be someone that has a certain flaw, but maybe the benefit of doing business with them overrides that. In that case, that would be the smarter decision. So it's not always black and white. It's sort of using your intuition, your intellect, looking at the person's track record to try to decide if does the good outweigh the bad? If I take a risk, is this a risk I'm willing to take? Sort of looking at the future like that. I think business is a lot of risk taking and so is this a risk I can afford to take if I bet on this person? One of my favorite quotes is from my dad who I mentioned to you earlier as an investment banker and he says life is all about betting on the right people and I
0: think that's really true. You know people call themselves investment bankers but some of these folks are individuals you should stay away from. I'm not talking about your dad, of course. Yeah. But just the, you know, people anoint themselves with terms. And you can do that unless you call yourself a doctor, that's against the law. Or a lawyer, right. that's also against the law. But you can certainly call yourself an investment banker if, if you want to, and nobody will question that. Aside from the vetting that you must do if you're going to engage with that individual, I guess my question is... Is there anything you can do more than step away should you get involved and let anybody else know or just move on and keep your mouth shut? That's
5: a great question, and that's another question. You know, as a therapist, I'm trained to never give people advice because every situation is unique and different. So there's no real general advice for that kind of question. So. What I would do if, you know, a client came to me and had that question is that we would, again, we would weigh all the answers is like, is it worth it for you to stick your neck out and warn other people? Like sometimes it's not, you know, sometimes the messenger gets killed, you know, for lack of a better expression. It really depends on the individual situation, there's no right answer a lot of the time. It depends how serious the situation is. Again, would you really be harming people if you didn't say anything? If there was harm or damage to be done to future people, it, you know, it might be risking something. But again, it really depends on the really specific situation.
0: What do you think drives people to be church leaders, politicians, Instagram stars?
5: Yes, yeah, So I know we're leading with that one. These traits, of narcissism and psychopathy. And again, it's on a spectrum, just because we're using these terms, it doesn't mean that someone has, you know, what's called narcissistic personality disorder, which is only 1% of the population. But again, we all have traits of narcissism, by the way, and that's okay. It's normal to do that, because we have to survive, we can't just let people walk all over us. So we all have sort of an innate sense of narcissism. And a moderate sense is okay, because it enables you to go out in the world and believe in yourself and do things like have a radio show Hmm.
1: um,
5: or write a book. And so that's important to have that. It's just when it gets to the triple E, when it becomes empathy impairments, exploitation, entitlement, that's when it becomes potentially harmful to other people. And so we don't want to get to that point. So we want to think about everything on a spectrum, and narcissism on a spectrum. So that being said, the criminal psychologist I interviewed for my book said psychopathy confers advantages to certain professions like being a CEO or a politician or an actor because you sort of need some of those traits to do those things. I recently did a radio show interview and someone called in and was like, "Well, to be a leader of really high level, you kind of need to have these traits." I agree with that and I think a lot of psychologists agree with that a sort of really kind of humble person who doesn't like the spotlight, they don't want to necessarily be CEOs. They don't want to be a senator or a president or anything like that, or an actor or an Instagram star. And so some of those traits serve those purposes in those professions. And that's why a lot of those people who gravitate towards the professions may have those traits. And again, we're not saying they're narcissists or psychopaths, but they may have some of those traits that enable them to not feel as bad as a normal person would for example if they had to send a drone somewhere and they knew they would be inadvertently killing innocent people some people are able to do that easier than others and again that doesn't mean they're a psychopath or a narcissist but you definitely have to be a little bit detached from other people to do things like that
0: so this can make great leaders a form of this
5: it can Yeah, I mean, I think there's an element to um, every great leader. And again, it doesn't mean that they're disordered, but there's an element there of really believing in themselves, at least, at the very least. And doing what it takes to become powerful, that can be quite a journey to become really, really powerful. You have to do a lot. And sometimes that requires, you know, maybe stepping on other people to do it. I don't know. I'm not in that position, but that's what I imagine.
0: Is empathy or a lack of it selective, or is it across the board? Can you have empathy about one individual or several individuals and for some reason have no empathy at all for someone that oh, you maybe you should uh, yeah. have it?
5: Yeah, I think that happens a lot, actually, is that sometimes that's, com- that's created from our own bias or how we look at things. As individuals, we are all have our own kind of the things that we feel more sensitive or compassionate to than others, and I think that all comes from like where we come from, how we grew up, what our messages were as children, you know, all of those things. I definitely agree with you that we can have selective empathy for, for sure.
0: What is the future of this business? And I'm putting business into this conversation and what you do, because I would think that you and people like you and perhaps a potential service like yours could be offered to many organizations, private and public that want to vet their transactions in the future and the people that they're going to be working with? How much psychotherapy is involved in the employment world?
5: Oh, I think it should be way more involved. I mean, a huge part of what I do, and I'm, I'm certified in something called Imago Relationship Therapy, which is essentially conflict resolution. It's just getting people to relate to each other better. Everything in life is all about relationships and connection. absolutely every single thing. One of my mentors always describes it as, we're born into this world through a relationship. You know, the only way a human being comes to to be, in reality, is through a relationship between sperm and an egg. And then, you know, you're gestating in your mother's womb. That's a relationship. And you're actually literally birthed from your mother. And then you're breastfeeding for survival. So human beings were all wired for relationship and connection from the moment of conception, almost. And so a lot of us just don't have the skills because we're not taught the skills to. Relate to each other in healthy ways. And that's exactly what I do for a living. And mostly I do it with couples and families, but there's a lot of talk in my world about how do we take that to a greater scale of conflict resolution between countries at war. Or we do talk about bringing these services to different companies and for team building and relationship building. And because a lot of the skills we teach are, I think, critical to healthy relationships in general and that the world needs more of them.
0: Can you and or this organization that may be created be engaged in a preventive way with regard to future conflicts or the potentiality of that just to have you on board more or less as part of the protection, part of the advancement of the engagement?
5: Oh, yeah. I think that would be most important. You know, I like to look at everything as preventative because that's when you're going to be the most successful. For example, if a couple comes into my office after many, many years of resentment versus a couple that comes to me for preventative reasons, I do get a lot of young couples who are like, you know, we're starting to see a little crack here and there and it's nothing too bad yet. We want to come before it gets too bad. 100% of the time, those couples are going to do way better than the ones that have come after decades of resentment. And so prevention, I I think is key with everything is with our health. I see a doctor who believes in preventative medicine, not treating a problem when it happens, but trying to take the steps to prevent a problem from occurring in the first place. So again, I think holistically speaking, we always want to look at things from a preventative standpoint and we can definitely do a lot of work with that with the stuff that I do.
0: Is there any technology involved in analyzing potential clients or and what I'm referring to is, you know, you've seen these well, I have anyway, these Myers-Briggs test online, which I've taken two or three times yeah. <laughs> uh, just to continually figure out who I am. And is there anything uh, in your field That could be administered potentially, whether it's an app or a test that employers could use to, and this sounds awful, this sounds a bit 1984, to vet their potential hires? I mean, is is that in process?
5: No, I don't know anything about that in terms of what we do. I do know they use a lot of personality testing, Myers-Briggs stuff in different companies just for, Hmm. you know, people to have self-awareness and when working with different personality types. So, you know, in my field, we also try to not look at anything as bad or good. So when we think about introvert or extrovert, For example, there's not one that's better than the other. It's just different. And so I think a lot of these personality tests, in my field anyway, you want to use them to just look at people so they can understand their differences. Because a lot of conflict comes from when we don't understand another person because they're different from us. And we think just because they do something differently, it means what they're doing is wrong. So, you know, as therapists and conflict resolution, we often teach people to reframe that to say it's not that your wife isn't doing that wrong. It's just a different way of doing it. I think that's always important to note that when we're looking at differences in people, we want to be curious. We want to understand what those differences are and how those people can thrive in that situation given those differences. So I think it's helpful in that way. Like if this person is an introvert, how would they thrive in this company? What are things that we can do to ensure that they thrive?
0: I'm typically not spotted as an introvert because I present well and I've learned how to do that.
5: People get confused a lot about the definition of introvert versus extrovert. And one of my close friends has a joke that she's an extroverted introvert, meaning, well, the the true definition of an introvert, is they're not shy or socially awkward necessarily. In fact, my friend who calls herself the extroverted introvert, is sort of the life of the party. The difference with her is that after she goes to party and she's talking it up and laughing, and she then has to go home and hibernate for like three days to recharge. So the introvert part is that it's how you get your energy. So extroverts get a lot of energy from being around people. They can go to that cocktail party and they want to keep going out, where the introvert can go and talk and schmooze, but they're going to feel really drained after that and need time to recharge.
0: You're a licensed psychotherapist, correct? Yes. And I'm a media guy and living in Southern California where the word energy is thrown around like patchouli yeah. and, and and crystals. Yeah. But it's a word I use every now and then. And you've described exactly what it's like to be someone like myself where I have to engage in 12 or 15-hour days when I go out in the public. All work-related, whether it's a party or an event or what have you. It's completely work-related. Then I need a, an equal amount of time to recharge and be left entirely alone at home. Is there any way that, that you could clinically evaluate the word energy and make it part of the discourse like you just did?
5: Yeah, I think the energy you describe, what they talk about in L.A., and I have my recent favorite show is the Netflix season, You. It's the second season, and it takes place in L.A., and they have a lot of social commentary on this type of stuff, and it's hilarious. And it's also about a nice guy psychopath. So that's an interesting one, but the way I'm using energy is literally like, what do you get energy motivated and inspired from? Versus like, I think the one you're talking about is people's auras, you know. Versus, right. and so I think those are completely different things. Like the energy someone gives off, and that may be more to do with what I was talking about with intuition. Like, what energy are you? Are you feeling a negative energy from the person? And then the energy I'm talking about, introvert versus extrovert, is like what gives you life, what gives you purpose, what makes you motivated, and excited versus what's really going to drain you. So yeah, the very literal sense of energy, you know, is what motivates us.
0: In addition to reading your book, Lena, of course, what advice would you give on a broad stroke to our audience right now, to people that are listening that might be dealing with something, anything related to what we've discussed?
5: Just listening to, again, your gut. If you're thinking about people in your life, are you thinking about yourself? And just thinking about who's good in your life right now. You know, one of the quotes I like is, we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. So, you know, asking people to think about who are the five people that you are spending your time with? Could be in a business or a personal level. What traits do they have? Do they bring positivity to your life? And just, I like writing the book because I really want it to make people think about themselves and think about the people around them. And everyone who's read it has said that it's, it's really made them think about that stuff and who's in our life and who deserves to be in our life.
0: We've been speaking with Lena Derhawley. The book is My Daddy is a Hero, How Chris Watts Went from Family Man to Family Killer. Lena, thanks so much for joining me today on the program.
5: Thank you so much, Ellis. It was a pleasure.
0: You can find Lena derhaly's book on Amazon.com or go to her website, lenarderholly.com.
2: Subscribe to the Ellis Martin newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form.
0: Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Meanwhile, subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit EllisMartinReport.com.